It's a blowout. Eighth inning, 10-3. Bases are loaded for Verlander, who waits out the real pitch. He swings, and it's a high fly ball. Deep center field. It is gone. Home run. And a huge backflip to celebrate. All right, Ben, start the show already. What is up, everybody? Welcome into Flippin' Bats with your host, Ben Verlander. We got another exciting one today. Of course, I'm going to go through my storylines, but we got Lance Lynn, World Series champion, current Chicago White Sox pitcher joining me. We got the voicemails where you guys can call in and ask me whatever you want to ask me. Voice whatever you want to voice. And of course, my six-tool player of the week. But I wanted to get into some storylines, and this one was a big one for me. I grew up watching The Machine. Albert Pujols, a legend, and one of one of the biggest superstars the game has seen. I grew up watching him. I fell in love with the game of baseball watching Albert Pujols play. And I feel like what happened this week, uh, he, was, he was released by the Angels. This is a big deal. And, and it's not, it wasn't talked about for more, more than like a day. And he's a legend. And he's arguably on his farewell tour. It's not confirmed. But it sure seems like it might be. And the Angels... Uh, I've parted ways with him. He's no longer on the big league team. So I wanted to bring in Jeff Fletcher, a uh, longtime beat writer for the Los Angeles Angels, uh, to get his perspective. First off, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me, man. And I wanted to ask you a question. What? Take me through that day. Were you as surprised as the rest of the country, or did you know this was coming? Well, I had no idea this was coming. I was stunned. Uh, I, I kind of figured that at some point, uh, when Pujols was really performing badly, that they might kind of come up with some agreement or they, you know, did like when, when A-Rod was done playing and they said, all right, A-Rod is shifting into his advisor role, you know, so basically they're going to keep paying him, but, but it was like a, a formal thing and he got to have his farewell and they said goodbye to everything, but just an unceremonious DFA uh, did not expect that at all. So from, from an outsider's perspective, we were told, uh, that the team was thrown off and, and that Trout was pretty upset about it and, and was a little emotional. What, what was the team's reaction? What, were, were players really upset about this? Well, we don't talk to that many players anymore, unfortunately. And uh, sure. Mike Trout was definitely upset about it. I mean, he's the closest to Albert of anybody on the team. He'd been with him for his whole career. And uh, he was certainly stunned. Uh, I'm sure everybody on the team had different reactions. Uh, I'm sure they didn't see it coming either, but uh, you know, it is, it's definitely shows this is a, this tough business. I'm sure it was a reminder to all of them. So we were kind of told that there was a front office thing with this and Yarbrough was pitching the night before and Albert had great numbers against Yarbrough. He wanted in um, Joe Madden wanted to play him, but it came from the front office saying, Albert, or we're not going to start Albert. He, he does not fit in. We don't want to play him. Where is, is the word that we heard correct? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of trying to piece together the, the tea leaves from, uh, from what different people have said. And what it sounds like to me is that they really realized over a period of a couple weeks that they just weren't their best team with Albert Pujols out there. Not only was he not the best hitter they could put in that spot, but when they moved Jared Walsh to right field, then all of a sudden they're subpar defensively at first base and right field because he's not really a right fielder. So their better team is for Walsh to be playing first, and that doesn't really leave anything for Albert because obviously Otani is the DH all the time. So they came to this realization, and then they, they got to the point where just Albert you know, wasn't going to play all the time, and I think that he wasn't interested in being a bench player. And when they decided that they were going to make this move with him, I think they told him, they told Joe Madden not to play him that day because they were going to make the move after the game. And I think that's what Albert was, uh, was mostly upset about. What do you think Joe Madden felt about this? Was he on board with it or do you think he's pretty upset about this situation? Well, I mean, he wants to win too. And I think that he probably wishes that they could have, you know, had a, a better resolution to it. I'm sure he would have liked for, for Albert to just say, you know, you're right, I'm not as good anymore, and I'm just going to retire, and thanks for everything, and they could have had a nice moment. I'm sure he didn't like to have to be in the middle of this thing, you know, that, that came out kind of uh, uncomfortable. But, I mean, he knows as well as anybody that it's clearly not their best team with, with Pools playing first base and Jared Walsh playing right field. So, you know, I think that it's just kind of a hard reality. Yeah. 
So what is next for Albert Pujols? Well, I, I don't know for sure. I think that probably some team is going to have an injury or something. And obviously nobody's, he costs the major league minimum to just bring him in. And, uh, you know, as, as maybe a little time passes right now, he wants to, he thinks of himself as an everyday player. I think as he realizes that that opportunity doesn't really exist and maybe the Kansas city Royals or something say, Hey, can you come in and play a couple times a week and mentor some of our young guys? And he, he grew up around Kansas city, maybe something like that could happen. But uh, I really don't see a team giving him an everyday opportunity. And I certainly don't see a national league team doing it. So that I think the Cardinals thing that a lot of people want to see seems really hard to imagine, but I, uh, I do believe we'll see him in another big league uniform at some point this year. I just don't know exactly when or who. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me for a few minutes. Uh, I, I really appreciate your time and, and good luck with, with the Angels this year and uh, appreciate your time. All right, thank you. All right, Jeff, thanks again for joining me. I wanted to talk a little bit about Pujols from, from my perspective. And, and like we talked about, Pujols is a legend. And this is seemingly a farewell tour for him. I was mind blown this is a huge deal this guy's in the middle of his farewell tour arguably as a legend and he's just gone in the blink of an eye the angels are like yeah you know what Th thank you uh thank you for your time we're done and look you're the one that signed him to this long of a deal it, it goes both ways sometimes players do great on your deal and you're you're upset when it's done and sometimes you sign a guy to too long of a deal and you just deal with it. He is a legend in the game, and it was super upsetting to me. Um, it, it has been upsetting to watch a guy like him, his career average to dip below 300, uh, and, and for his career to, to end like this. Look, it frustrated me, and that day, it seemed to be a big deal for a day, but this is a big deal, and it was an upsetting day to me. And I, I, look, I hope he gets picked up, and Jeff touched on it for a second, um, it'd be cool to see him go back to the Cardinals, but I just don't see a fit because it's an NL team. I would love to see him get picked up by an AL team with a chance and give him a few ABs throughout the year and let him go out the way he deserves to go out because this isn't the way Albert Pujols deserves to go out. Another storyline from this week, no-hitters. We are seeing more no-hitters than ever. Wade Miley... Uh, over the weekend for the Cincinnati Reds, through the fourth no-hitter of the season, absolutely dealt. But it led into another question for me, and, and Wade Miley's was the second of the week. John Means of the Orioles threw the first one against the Seattle Mariners, and then later in the week made Wade Miley through his. What's going on in the league with no-hitters, man? This is unbelievable. I, I start to think, like, is this good for baseball? Is this good for the game? I love no-hitters. I absolutely love no-hitters. My brother's thrown three of them. I, I have a soft spot in my heart for pitchers doing really cool things. And a no-hitter is a really cool thing. But we're seeing it so often right now. Is this good for baseball? No. No, it's not. No-hitter is extremely exciting. But it seems like every other night, we're being told, turn on the TV, a no-hitter. Turn on the, no the TV, a no-hitter. And it's like every time that happens, and this is nothing against Wade Miley and John Means, the most recent guys to throw one. It seems like every time we're being told, turn on the TV, a no-hitter's happening. It gets less and less cool. It's like, of course, one's being thrown. It's, it's been a few nights since one has happened. A no-hitter is so difficult to do. And, and it seems like we're seeing more and more. And I wanted to dive in a little more to why we may be seeing more. And look, I don't have all the answers, but I have some ideas. You know, the baseball has changed. I think maybe that's playing a little role into it. But look, pitchers are more and more throwing harder and harder and harder. Pitchers are now regularly throwing 100 miles an hour. And the ones that do, it's moving like a slider. It's unbelievable the stuff pitchers have right now. And then you start to look at the access that we're getting more and more into numbers. Analytics, spin rate. If I do this with my finger, I get a lot more spin. If I do this, my velocity gets a little better. 
pitchers have more access to numbers than ever before. And not only just when it comes to themselves, but when it comes to the batter. If I know a certain batter is coming up to the plate, I've done my research, and so has my entire research department. I know exactly where to throw him, I know where his weak spot is, I know where to stay away from. And every year we get more and more and more information, and we learn, this is important, we learn as we get more numbers how to best use them, how to associate the numbers that we're getting and how to turn that into outs on the other end. And I feel like we're getting this culmination of pitchers throwing harder, their stuff moving more, as well as them getting more information on weaknesses from batters. And I think that's why we're starting to see these games where these dominant pitchers know exactly how to throw batters and we're seeing no hitters. When I look online, I'm starting to see a lot of, yeah, this is happening because of launch angle. Launch angle's changing baseball, and, and that's why we're seeing these no-hitters, because hitters are just going up there and launch angle, launch angle. I wanna explain to you guys why that is not true. I went to the hitting coach that is known to be the father of launch angle. His name is Craig Wallenbrock. Now, I wanna explain to you guys, and for those of you that are watching this, uh, I'm, I'm gonna explain a little bit on camera here. I wanna explain a little bit what launch angle is because it's not, well, I'm gonna swing straight up. That's what, that's what the misconception is. I'm gonna swing up and try and hit a homer. Launch angle, in a nutshell, is just getting yourself in a good slot at the beginning of the swing and staying in it as long as possible. So you're getting into the slot early, you're staying in that slot through contact, and you're staying in it through as long as possible. And the goal is to get in the slot and stay through it. And hopefully, when your swing reaches contact, we're catching the ball while our swing is naturally moving up and through the zone. That is launch angle. It's not, okay, I'm gonna try and hit this ball out. Let me dip my shoulder and swing up. It's the opposite of that. It's putting your swing in a good position to have success and staying on this path the whole way through the swing. So when people talk about launch angle as being a factor in these no-hitters, I just totally disagree with that. And, and you know, I, I, I know what launch angle is. I personally think it's a bad terminology because it gives people the wrong idea. All we hear about is launch angle now, but it's not guys swinging up. And, and like I said, I think the big reason we're seeing no-hitters is all this access to numbers we're getting and pitchers learning more and more how to deal with that. So those are my storylines of the week. Pool holes, a big one, and all these no-hitters happening, man. I love me a good no-hitter, but they are starting to happen a lot. But congratulations to Wade Miley and John Means this week on throwing no-hitters. Awesome stuff. So now I want to welcome in my guest of the week, World Series champion, the first of the pod, the first World Series champ, current pitcher for the Chicago White Sox, Lance Lynn. Lance, what is up, man? Thank you so much for joining me. No problem, man. Everything's good. Thanks for having me. Uh, so full disclosure, I was watching, uh, I was like looking back at some video and saw your like 2000, did you know you have like a reel from 2017 post-game interviews? Uh, just where you were like screwing around with everybody. So I was watching that and didn't know if you knew that was a thing. Uh, yeah, I had, a, had some good fun there for a couple of years with people. Uh, they didn't know how to take it. So that made it fun for me for sure. <laughs> so I would imagine if I was in that position, like one, the way baseball media has been portrayed for so long is annoying, kind of. Like you come off of a good outing, great. You come off of a bad outing. And for the first question to be asked, what was it like giving up three homers? It's like, what What do you want me to say? So I, I absolutely, I watched like the full video. It was like 30 minutes worth. I watched the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's kind of my, was my go-to. When, uh, whenever you have a good one, you don't talk about anything about yourself. Everything was about your team and all the nonsense you could. But when you had a bad one, you got to own it and move on. Yeah. Uh, so you got to play in the Little League World Series. And a lot of people can relate to like 
you know, a lot of people can relate to playing Little League Baseball. And I know personally, that's kind of the goal. Oh, my God, I want to play in the Little League World Series. What was that like? You, 1999 Williamsport, what was the Little League World Series experience like? Man, it was crazy because when you're growing up, Little League was cool. And then we had this central region. So it was like the last spot you would play to go to the Little League World Series real close to where I grew up in Indianapolis. So we'd always go watch it when I was younger. And I think I was 11. I was sitting there with my dad and I was like, I'm going to do this next year. He's like, okay, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and then we, <laughs> and then we did it. And then you like, you see everybody playing on TV when you're a kid. You're like, I want to do that. That'd be cool. And I was like, so we had a good team. Uh, you know, we had, we were, we were a really good team and all the guys that we'd stayed together all the way through high school. So that was even, even more fun and winning a state championship years later as seniors in high school. So we had a good run and that was kind of goal from the get go. And it was a weird thing to have when you're that young. That's like the ultimate goal when you're that young. And then obviously you want to, you, you want to move on to college where, so this is where I, this is where I start to get jealous. I played at old dominion university, which great D one college, but, even while we're at Old Dominion, it's like I like we look at SEC schools and in particular Ole Miss, and it's like that's like the pentacle of when you think of college baseball of like fun places to play. So when you when you were there, was it still considered like did they have like that party going on in the outfield? Was it like a sick place to play? Yeah, you were so in, in left. You had the uh, wore like the. I guess your non-students wore where that it was a little bit more. Uh, they were just kind of grilling out, but right where the students were, it was beer showers, doing all their thing, uh, having a good old time. And I remember leaving college and going to the minor leagues. I was like, man, it was way more fun playing in college. I don't know what I was doing uh, going leaving, but <laughs> Ole, Ole Miss, Ole Miss did a heck of a job. He uh, putting together a, a good atmosphere for college baseball. That's for sure. And college football. You can't, can't beat the Grove down there on uh on SEC football Saturdays. What's your best college memory then? Oh man, you know there was there's too many to there's too many to go directly to. But when you look at, I mean, the first time I stepped on campus, I was on a recruiting trip where Ole Miss was playing. I think Auburn when they had Cadillac Williams and Ronnie Brown oh, and those sick. guys back in the day. And I was like, man, this is this is cool. This is a little different. And then you go down there and you see guys like Tim Tebow coming through and playing again and, and watching them play on the field when you're in college was, was neat. That's sick. Um, so you, why the number 31? You've worn that most of your career. Why 31? So when I was in St. Louis, I came up in 11, uh, I was 62. So just so you know, 62 is a terrible number to have on a world series <laughs> ring, but at least I have a ring. So I'll, I'll take it. Uh, but the next year I show up to spring training or a week before spring training, like, Hey, we got to get you out at 62. And I go, what do you have in the thirties? And they told me a couple and I was like, man, I don't know about that. And they're like 31 is available. I was like, perfect. Let's just cut 62 and a half and go. Oh, cut 62 and a half. Is that, is that, like is that, is that simple? I was like, that, that works for me for now. And then <laughs> now I'm 33, uh, which was my college number. And as my, my older brother wore that growing up. Uh, his whole life and all that. So I kind of wore for him this year uh, here on the South side. That's sick. So also I wanted to to take note of the fact that Lance Lynn is currently doing this interview, like in a little dungeon down underneath the stadium. (laughs) It's an off day. So one, thank you for joining us on an off day, but also this little, this little area they've made for you for uh, COVID is, is cracking me up, but um, yeah, we, we got our single, single sitting serving, cubicles for lunch right here in the hallway but we're boarded up so nobody can get to us good that's good um so in your first first full year in the big leagues you accomplished a lot big league all-star you won a world series what like so as a player growing up thinking myself personally and, and getting one getting drafted is the goal then it becomes making the big leagues then it becomes like becoming an all-star and a world series champion um, the only one of those like five things I listed that I did was getting drafted late as hell. I, I, so I can't experience, uh, I have, I have no way to relate. What is it like once you've done that so early on in your career? Like, what does your mind go to? What, what are your goals sort of shift to once you've become an all-star year, your first full season, you win a world series, uh, and you know, and your first ever season, what are your goals shift to from there? After that, it was like, well, I've already accomplished all this. Now I just can't get sent down or, or was all for nothing. So it was like, 
all right, get to three years. And then it was get to six years. And then uh, this year uh, I might get to 10 is the plan. So it was just one step at a time. And I got lucky early on to have, you know, the all-star game in the, in the world series uh, that early. And, you know, you don't realize what you're doing because you're so young. And then when you look at it back now, I'm 33, it's been 10 years. Uh, it's like, man, I need to do that again. That was, uh, I need to, I need to experience that again. So that's where I'm at now. I'm getting to 10 years this year. And I need to get back to a world series and, and give it, give it another go. So I actually noticed, I, I feel like this is going to be like, I feel like this year's special for you. 33, you're wearing 33 now. On June 2nd, that is your 10-year mark in the big leagues, which, one, is a big milestone in itself, but also means a lot for, like, your future. You know, all that stuff kicks in. Are, is there anything planned for, for your 10-year on, on June 2nd? Um, like, do you have, uh, you know, like, it's a cool moment. Uh, no, I agree. I, though, I think right now we're in the situation where we got all the protocols and we gotta we gotta abide by all that stuff. So I'm gonna see uh, where all that's at and and doing all that. But it's on the calendar. We got it marked. Uh, family, wife, and kids. We're trying to make sure we got uh, everybody there for us so we can enjoy it together. That's sick, man. Um, so I want to take you back a little bit to what I consider the best World Series game in history, um, which you got to pitch in. Uh, what one? What was that game like? T- 2011 World Series Game Six, Cardinals Rangers. You pitched. I think it was the eighth inning. Um, so, what was it like participating in that game, and then also having to wake up that next day and, and go right back at it? <laughs> so it, you always go back. Everybody talks about it because it's epic game, right? So I was in line to get the loss after giving up back-to-back jacks. I think in the seventh or eighth inning, right there, like you said. So I was sitting there in the dugout or in the dugout clubhouse when we tied it, and I was like, "Oh shit, they got me off the hook. Now we got a chance." And then I was like, "Man, I, I didn't blow it for us. They picking me <laughs> up." So I mean, David's yet to thank me for like that. That pretty much. <laughs> like catapulted me in an MVP of the world series because I gave him the chance to, to do all that coming back. But, uh, no, it was when you're, I was 24. Uh, I felt like I just ruined the world series for everyone. And then we come back and it was an awesome comeback win. And then next night, Tony put me back in there in the eighth inning and I was able to get through the side three or three down and we, we you know, we were able to win. So it was, uh, it was a crazy, uh, 24 plus hours there for me where I thought I was the worst pitcher in the world to next night celebrating a world series. And I was back in there too. So it was, it was cool. I've, I've always said that. Um, I've always been saying this, David freeze owes you for his MVP. <laughs> like, duh, <laughs> that's incredible. So you actually, um, like you said, you, you struggled in, in game six. Um, and then were you like, surprised coming right back out that next day and saying hey you're getting the ball back we're going to win this thing or was it kind of like you know what I, I went I asked him for it like were you surprised to get the nod uh yeah I mean when you're looking at uh, I was a rookie you're coming back after giving up uh, back you know back-to-back homers the night before and then I think he uh Tony put me in a situation where I was facing I think Michael Young uh Josh Hamilton and uh and it was it was a middle of the lineup and i was like what is he doing you know i'm I'm getting loose i'm like all right hell you can't be worse than last night so just let it fly <laughs> that was my thought process <laughs> it's like go out there and just let it fly and, and who cares and then uh tony still to this day was like oh you're going back in there he goes you had no fear so i wasn't worried about it and he goes and people looked at me like i was crazy but i i had uh, he goes i had no no fear in putting you back out there whatsoever so that year in 2011, you played for Tony Larusa, and it's kind of like come full circle. He was out of baseball for a while. You're now a vet as opposed to not even being an official rookie at the time. I, I feel like when, when Tony signed in Chicago to, to be the manager of the White Sox, it was kind of surprising to a lot of people. Uh, what, it, what has it been like having him now as, as a manager? Um, and, and do you think, I mean, obviously, you feel like it was the right fit, but what is it like having him now so many years later? I mean, it's kind of crazy when you look back at, that was your first uh, manager in the big leagues when you came up, um, when you got drafted by the Cardinals, he was the manager when I was coming up for the minor leagues. So he got to know me pretty well and I got to know him. Um, and then you look back, you know, you're 10 years later, you're, you know, you're, 
he's been out of the game, but he's a Hall of Famer now. It's like, I was like, Tony, what are you doing? He goes, I, I still want to win. I still have the itch. I still have the desire to do all of it. And I was like, good, so do I. That's why I'm still here. Let's do this thing. So um, it's been exciting. Um, you know, it's obviously, you know, a little different uh, with, you know, the time off and all that for him. But, you know, he's jumped right back into it. He's still the same the same guy. All he cares about is winning, uh, doing your job, and making sure you're there for your teammates. And uh, he's never changed, uh, even though he's been out of the game for 10 years. Or, well, not in the dugout for 10 years. He's never left the game because I don't think he can. So I wanted to get into you personally a little bit you you pitching because baseball has kind of evolved over the last I don't know five years with with the way pitchers go about it and and you were a guy that's always relied on your heater but it seemed like baseball for a while became like sink it and cut it and sink it and cut it and you know sink into righties cut it away you know and you you became that guy you could do that but now it's almost like baseball's back to the heater, the good old four-seamer, you know, up in the zone, totally different. How have you had to evolve as a pitcher? Uh, it was crazy. When I was growing up and when I was in college at Ole Miss, it was four-seamer up and curveball. So that's what I – and I could throw a little two-seamer, nothing crazy. Uh, and I got drafted by the Cardinals, who were known for uh, sinker – especially the sinker ball back then with uh, Dave Duncan and all that. So it was one of those things where you, you had to learn it and, you know, quick outs, uh, you know, small pitch counts. That's what they're all, all about getting the game moving. So I learned that. And then it's all kind of just able to morph it all into what I can do well and use those things that I learned along the way to make me a pitcher that uh, doesn't have the, you know, the big breaking ball or, or all that stuff um, that, you know, that they're, it's kind of a, you know that that cute thing that everybody does now so I figured a long time ago I wasn't cute enough to do that so let's just be good at what I'm good at and let's just ride it out here you're very cute Lance don't get me don't, <laughs> don't. <laughs> so am I right like has obviously you have evolved as a pitcher but has has baseball evolved in the last five years I feel like you know I I obviously have watched my brother a, a ton or you know I would try and watch every start of his and it almost seems like his resurgence and his success you know over the last couple of years has been credited to the heater up and that wasn't like for a while that was like a taboo thing so have you changed the way you pitched or is it also like a league-wide like cultural change in the way pitchers are going about attacking batters so i think it's it's a it's definitely a league-wide thing guys that's all they work on now so i think that we're going to run into a little thing here moving forward is when hitters start covering that really well and then you don't have anything else because that's where we got it everybody started covering the sinker and the cutter and then we went to the four seam up and i think you're going to see the next phase is guys that are able to do both and i'm hoping that i can stay around long enough to uh do both and and have success uh you know deep into my 30s but when you're if you have the ability to throw up you've always had it but that was just kind of those things that they were you were told not to do they were like, oh, I know yeah. you got away with it. It was back then. It was getting away with it. You got away with one of, but <laughs> now it's like, no, I just I'm blowing him away. I've always been able to do that, but I was told that that was a bad idea. Um, and heck, if I would have just kind of did what I did growing up when I first came, I probably I had strikeouts up there early in my career. But it was we wanted the ball in play. We wanted quick outs. We, you know, the strikeout wasn't wasn't as big as it is now. So it's just kind of the way the game evolves and, and it kind of goes in cycles, but I think it might come back to where you've got to be able to pitch up. You got to be able to pitch in and out and be able to, you know, move around the all four corners of the strike zone with it too. Yeah. I, I do feel like hitters are, are going to adjust as well. And I remember, so my, my brother was kind of one that started the fastball up, you know, he kind of was on the trend early. Cause I remember talking to him and he's had really good success against trout in his career. And I remember talking to him about facing Trout, and he was like, yeah, you know, his, you know, where you have to get him out is up and in, up and in heater. He hits everything low, everything down, he crushes. Um, so that was his thing. And it's almost like, I feel like watching him, that is no longer a hole of his. <laughs> so um, I think uh, hitters are going to evolve as well. But would you... What is it like facing Trout, and is that is that a hole of his anymore? Is that like there's really nowhere to go with him? Yeah, I mean you're looking at the one of the you know the best hitters of all time. He's going to make that adjustment. He's going to start getting to things that uh, are not his strengths because that's who he is. He's gonna he's gonna make those those weaknesses uh, turn into you know something that he can cover. Um, I think that 
that's one of those things that like we we're talking about they're going to make the adjustment so pitchers have to keep making the adjustment along the way and you have to do what you got to do but like you said when you're facing Mike Trout there's no it's not a comfortable at bat <laughs> um that's for that's for darn sure but you got to make your pitches and uh you know you can't just live in one place to anybody and especially to him I feel like everyone in their career ends up with like this obscure not obscure but but some player that you wouldn't expect to like rake against you or like is always a tough at bat for you who who's your guy man i'm trying to uh i had when i was in st louis the joey Votto and jay bruce combination was just absolute torture <laughs> for me uh with they just they absolutely crushed my sinker and then they would take ball one take ball two away and then i was like all right i gotta i gotta try to get in the strike zone and whack um so those those two especially together on the same team were, uh, were, were tough for me early on in my career until I learned how to, uh, you know, manipulate the cutter in to them and, and be able to use the sinker on both sides and then started, you know, getting ahead of them and having a little bit of success, but they've got good numbers on me. And then thank you. Uh, Castro, uh, he's still, uh, with the, uh, he's with Washington. He was with Chicago early on there yeah. forever. He, it's like every pitch I threw, it, it just was a knock. I don't understand it. I could throw him any pitch I had and he could, he would hit it for a hit, but he was hitting two. He had 200 hits a year though. So it, like when you look back on it, it didn't feel that bad, but it was like, man, I'm making good pitches, but everything's a hit to you. And I don't like it. Well, look, I'm not here to, I'm not here to make you to talk about your struggles. I'm here to make you look good. What's the reverse. Who, who's somebody that you like always get out. Man, you, you you put somebody like that. You start doing that, and the next thing I know, I face them and they go off on me. That's like the worst yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Don't can, even don't. We won't do even it. talk about it. You, we won't. you don't even <laughs> want it. I, the way I approach everything is they're hitting a thousand off me. It's about time they get out. It doesn't matter who it is in the box. <laughs> um, speaking of guys you have faced, I am like obsessed with the career that was Josh Hamilton. I think for like a very brief period of time, he's one of the greatest athletes we've seen in baseball. It was absolutely remarkable what he did in his career. And and you got to face him. So and you got to face him when he was like in that prime. What what was the game plan going into a game getting ready to face a guy like him? Man, it was like, well, first of all, you you know how going into a game, it's like this guy's not gonna beat me. So if I get behind, I'm not gonna I'm not even gonna give him anything to hit. But you're talking about a guy that he he could cover anything on both sides of the plate and do damage to all fields. And it was just and it, it didn't even look like he was really trying. It was like he was just, All right, I'm in the box, um, I'm here and I dare you to throw something that I could put a barrel on because I'm gonna blast it. So that when you're looking at a hitter and he just looks like he's gonna own you. It's like, especially I was young too. So I was like, <laughs> this dude looks like he looks like he's all over whatever I'm going to throw. I don't like it. Um, but that's, that's how locked in he was. And that's how easy the game was. And that's kind of like we're talking about with trout, the game slowed to certain guys. And um, it was, it was definitely really slow to him in, in that time where he was just, he was, he was special, man. You mentioned being locked in. And I feel like personally of, of anybody you get like locked in like you get so locked in. I was watching a spring training start of yours this year. You were yelling at umpires. It was awesome. I love it personally. <laughs> it, it's almost like, you know, and, and I've heard you say before, you, you feel like you need to get angry. And is that something you need to like get yourself to? Is that a place you need to get yourself to? We had uh, Tyler Glass now on a previous episode and he had to do the, he had to like go into like pharma bro to get himself angry and all that stuff. Like where, is that something that come naturally to you when you're on the mound? Yeah, the the anger kind of comes naturally, and it's the crazy thing is, is it's more at myself when I like make a pitch that I shouldn't, or you know, I try to. Uh, it's just one of those things where all right, it's like all right, don't be an, you're being an idiot right now, and then it's just like I'm not very <laughs> uh, I'm not a guy that uh, boosts myself up with talk. I'm like, hey, it's time for you to stop being a dumbass. There's no other way yeah. to say it, and then it kind of it kind of trickles over and it just gets myself uh, fired up. But I mean, early on in my career, it was one of those things where I would get too fired up and, and stuff would start going all over the place. So it was definitely a fine line. And then uh, the older I've gotten here that, you know, I'm able to control it in a sense where I'm using it for the, for the good of myself and not, uh, you know, just getting pissed and trying to throw the ball by everybody. 
It also seems like it's something where, you know, you've had an extremely successful career and you're obviously a good pitcher. So it's like you get yourself and you get yourself there and it's like, oh, this guy, this guy goes after it. He's tough on the mound. And it's like if a guy, if a rookie came up and is is like acting like a badass on the mound and then gives up like six runs, it's like this guy has issues. Like, I don't know if you can pitch like this. (laughs) Oh yeah. Early on in my career, I was, uh, wore my emotions on my sleeve too much. Uh, you know, I had bad, uh, bad mound presence, bad attitude and all that. And then you start pitching a little better and all of a sudden you turn into a bulldog fierce competitor. It's crazy <laughs> how that works. <laughs> um, so I have something that I ask uh, a few different questions that I ask everybody that comes on. Um, and there's obviously, especially with COVID right now, a lot of like rule changes going on. If you, were commissioner for a day what is one rule in baseball not just covid related that you would change oh man so i've never actually been asked that Uh, i know that you get asked about all the new rule changes what do you think and all that um oh man all i'm i'm a i'm a traditional starting pitcher guy so you're talking about my whole life when i watched the baseball game i wanted to know who was starting and i wanted to see who was going to last longer and who was going to be when you look at the end of the night who was going to be the man um so i hope we get back to those days i don't know if we will full-fledged where it's like hey where everybody's going 110 pinches against each other but i think that they're trying to get that back um, and I mean, I think that that brings the excitement back to the game. It's you go to the ballpark to see who's starting against who. Like you look at Shohei Otani, people are coming to see him start. You know, he's building back in yeah. after being off and stuff. But it's exciting to see those guys in the seventh, eighth inning working against the lineup third time through to actually see the cat and mouse, watch them like watch them work. Um, I, I hope. I mean, that's not a rule change, but that's just, uh, that's just the old, no, yeah. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm the old guy now that likes the, likes the old stuff. <laughs> you versus me for, let's see who's going to last the longer, who's going to last the longest. And then, uh, we'll go have a beer afterwards. <laughs> so, um, recently in baseball, there was a no hitter, but it was seven innings. So I wanted to get your opinion on that because I have my opinions. Um, and I, I was watching it happen. Madison Bumgarner through seven inning, complete game, zero hits, but it does not count as a no-hitter. And I was watching, and it almost seemed like nobody knew what to do. Like, Bumgarner was kind of like, yeah, this is cool. The team kind of gave, like, a half-ass celebration. What are your thoughts on it? Um, one, is a pitcher, and two, do you think it should count as a no-hitter? Um, so we were talking about this today, actually. Uh, with it's a game that is scheduled for that amount of innings, and that's the case. We we and we were we went over today. Our our the starters that are here today were saying it's a no hitter. But if it's a rain shortened seven innings or something like that, it's not. So it's one of those things. If it's on the schedule, scheduled for seven, and you throw a no hitter, you didn't give up a hit. It's a no hitter. But that's kind of the fine line there. So it's a tough one. But I think if if it's, if it's on the schedule for seven and you do it, you did it. Uh, but I also don't like the doubleheaders seven innings, but it is nice when you have to do them. <laughs> right. And so like, I remember, you know, I played in the Florida state league and there's a million right now. So it gets brutal. So you start, you know, it's like one, the games are annoying, but it's like, you wake up and it's like, Oh, we got a doubleheader. Oh wait, it's only seven innings each game. <laughs> that, that definitely helps them. So w- my, my opinion on it here is that, look, it's going to go down in the record books, not that complete games like are you know super talked about, but they're cool. This is going to go down as a complete game. So my whole thing is if it's going to count as a, an official complete game in the record book, I feel like it needs to count as an official no-hitter. And it, it's, it's either got to be one way or the other. It can't count as a complete game and not a no hitter. It, it's got to be one way or the other, in my opinion. No, I agree with that. I didn't even think about it that way, but that's, I mean, hundred percent there. Uh, if that's what I'm saying, if it's on the schedule and that's what you're supposed to play, then, then that's what it is in my opinion. So if you, if you were on the mound and you get through seven, no hit innings, cause I, I just, I have that, the vision in my head of him throwing seven, no hit innings and him just being like, kind of like smiling is, are you like, 
would you have been pumped or would you have been like pissed off? Like, I want, I need to go two more innings. Like where would your <laughs> mindset have been? I, I think for, for me as the, as the, you know, you were talking about the old school thing. It's like, man, I need two more innings right now. <laughs> I would, let's just keep going and see where this takes us. Um, but if the game's over and I didn't give up a, it didn't give up a hit. It's like, I did my job the best I possibly could today. So that's, and that's what you, when you take the mound, that's all you're trying to do. So you, I would, I would, I would celebrate it as a uh, one hell of a game. That's for sure. <laughs> but it's obviously not going to be a no hitter, but uh, you take the complete game and I didn't give up a hit. That's the way I'd say it. Yeah. Um, so one, one big discussion we have on this show is the face of major league baseball who is the face of major league baseball we we talk about it a lot i have my opinion my producer has another opinion i want to ask you who right now is the face of major league baseball man uh if you'd asked me a year ago it's a no doubter in my opinion and, and that was trout and i've played with guys that uh, you know make a case for it and now you're looking at uh you know what mookie betts is doing and then the you know Fernando Tatis is starting to do things and is doing things as a as a young player that is saying he definitely has thrown his cap and said I'm here boys I'm and I'm coming for everybody so um, there's so many good players but when you look at those three right there um, I, I don't think anyone's uh, dethroned Trout yet but there's some guys that are 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 definitely making it interesting. Let me tell you how little you just helped our argument. The argument has been <laughs> him picking Mookie Betts the whole time, me saying it's actually no one right now, but I think Fernando Tatis is emerging as the face of baseball. And obviously, Trout is always in the discussion. I, my opinion is just that he doesn't want to be that guy. He's not a flat, not, not that the other guys are flashy. He's just not like, uh, he's not the same kind of player they are. I do think he's the best player in the world. Um, but yeah, so our, our argument this whole time has been between Trout, Mookie, and Tatis. So thank you for thank you for all your help. Um, um anytime I can not help at all, I will. <laughs> all right. So some recurring questions we ask all of our guests. It's a career moments segment. So I have three questions for you. Career moments. First one: What was your welcome to the MLB moment? Oh uh, man, welcome to the MLB. Uh, I would say. Uh, well, as a as a as a player on the field, I, I threw first pitch strike. So you're just like, okay, cool. And then I threw three straight balls, and I was like, uh oh. <laughs> and then uh, and then I <laughs> to get to a full count, I gave up a foul homer. I was like, this is this is not going well. And then I got an out. So I was like, all right, we're cool. I can say I made it. That was that was my my thought, but and then you also have you know the 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 veteran guys in St. Louis really taking care of it. And, you know, you get your suit. That was kind of like your hey, welcome to the big leagues, kid. You got a suit now. Now wear it and look professional. What was your most memorable play on the field? Oh man, I mean, for for me, when you go back to the the World Series and eleven, the you know. The home run that that David hit was obviously the most memorable. But for me personally, oh man, I I, I don't have it. Everything kind of starts rolling together uh, the more you play here. But as a as a guy on a team, that when David hit that home run, that was that was, and it's still one of those things where you don't forget it. Well, it is personal because it would never have happened <laughs> if it wasn't for you, as you said. Who should have? If I wouldn't, if if I wouldn't have gave up a couple homers, David wouldn't be the hero he is in St. Louis. So you so you you should be MVP of the 2011 <laughs> World Series, which in my mind I've always said you are. Um, and <laughs> the last career moment, uh, a moment that stands out to you with teammates that took place off the field. Oh, uh, we had. So it's it's easy because it's always about golf as a pitcher, right? So we were in San Francisco. We went down to play uh, Cypress Point down at down in Pebble, and uh, it was myself, Jake Westbrook, and Adam Wainwright. And we rented a car and we spent a whole like we did a whole day playing a course that uh, we'll never be able to get back on again. I only got on because of who they were. <laughs> um, but that was like one of those things where this is this was cool then. But they, I mean, they really those two, uh, Kyle Loesch and uh, and Chris Carpenter, really took took care of me in my days in St. Louis. So you know the, those times with those guys were were pretty cool. 
I, I very well know the experience of getting to play that course, not because of me, but who you're playing with. I got to play it last year uh, with one with my brother and a couple other people in the group. So I would I would be remiss without asking you what you did on the par three. What is it? Fifteenth. It's like two hundred and forty yards across the water. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, when you got to go three wood to get over you got, the darn it's thing. driver off it's the like, tee, basically. What are, we, <laughs> what are we doing right here? I was like, all right, I'm gonna, I gotta kind of hood this iron. I think I went, I think I went three iron, and I pulled it left of the green, and I just barely kept it on. So you were safe from, from that, rolling I feel down. Like, I feel I, like that's I was, the goal. I was chipping. I was chipping greenside. There you go. <laughs> um, so uh, one question I ask everybody as well is, what is one experience? from the minor leagues because I played minor league baseball so I, I relate to it and I know uh, how important it is to baseball because it's very unique not you know in other sports people don't have to grind through a minor league sort of experience so everybody has sort of gone through it what is one experience you took from the minor leagues that that you take with you to this day I think the biggest thing is when you when you get to the major leagues and realize how blessed you are to be here, and then you look back at all the stuff you went through and, and the, the crazy, the relationships you build on bus trips for eight to 12 hours and things like that are, are pretty cool, but it also makes you really uh, understand of how special it is to get here and how much you, um, as much as you enjoy the process of well, no one enjoyed the process of coming up to the minor leagues. They're like, get me out of here as fast as you can and get me to the big leagues. But it made you really, uh, you know, really understand and, and and be grateful for the being in the major league. So all the bus trips and, and all the, uh, you know, late, late, late bus rides to the middle of the night. It's like, man, the bus drivers around the world are, are special people to be able to do the things they do driving through the night. That's for sure. Well, you got there, man. And all those bus trips led to a pretty damn good almost 10-year career, and uh, congratulations on coming up on 10 years this year. Uh, I'm really excited for you. Congratulations on that, and thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it was a blast. Come back on whenever you want, man. I'd love to have you. No, I appreciate it. Hopefully, when I get to 10 years, I can get the bike I was driving around in Batavia, New York when I first signed. Maybe I can get that. That'll be a nice little gift, but <laughs> I don't think it exists anymore. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Good luck the rest of the way, dude. No problem. Thanks for having me. Wait, what is this? What is this? I, sh I should have asked you, but what is this bike story? No, so when you when I signed in Batavia, New York, I, so I, was, I think it was, that was a 39th pick. So I had $20 to my name when I signed. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to Batavia, New York, and I was able to get a bike because you didn't have a car. And we were staying at a host family's house. Yeah. So there was three of us in the, three of us in the host and a host house where it was like one bedroom with a giant closet with two two full beds in it that's the way we were <laughs> that was my first month in the minor leagues so the only way we, everybody was on bikes every person on the team was biking around batavia new york we would go to a local deli to get a 12 inch sub and we'd eat half before the game half after that was what we did and the that, thought of and then the bike thought down, of you riding bike around this denny's. bike <laughs> i've eaten oh, yeah, at that nice i've stuff. eaten at that denny's in batavia batavia is oh, a yeah. dump by the way so to to envision oh, yeah. you riding around on your little bike in Batavia. Oh yeah, I went I went from uh, Oxford, Mississippi to Batavia, New York. And I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going back. I called I called the front office like I'm, I need to go back to college. This is not it. This is not where I'm at. And then the next week I was in uh, Quad City, so I was like, all right, cool. But I gave my bike away and never saw it again. We got to get you that bike, dude. All right, man. I'll let you. I'll let you go. Enjoy. I think it, I think it was like orange too. It was it was not a pretty bike. Well, enjoy your off day, dude. Thank you so much for joining yeah, I appreciate me. appreciate it. All right, Lance Lynn, thank you so much for joining me. That was, uh, that was awesome. Good luck the rest of the way. But now, for one of my favorite parts of the show, the hotline. Make sure you're getting those calls in. Voice your displeasure with your team. Ask me any question you want. Get those calls in. 213-537-9339. So you can be part of this show. It's one of my favorite parts, so keep getting those calls in. So, Rick, hit me with that first one. Um, hi, Ben. Huge fan here. Listen to your podcast every day. Just wanted to get your opinion on Jacob DeGrom's minor injury and how he's been hitting, not so much pitching, because that's always amazing, just how he's batting and your thoughts on the Mets start of the season, except Lindor, because that's crushed. 
Thank you so much. Hope you hear my voice on the podcast. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much for the question. So, look, you say minor injury with Jacob deGrom, and I hope that's the case. And it's, you know, it looks that way out on the mound. He's still electric. But this isn't the first time we've seen a little something flare up with him. And, and every time you start talking about the best pitcher in the game getting MRI after MRI trying to figure out what is going on, it's never really minor in my opinion. I'm a little worried about him, and, and this isn't the first star. We saw him get, uh, we saw him remove himself from the game over the weekend after, uh, you know, throwing five innings, comes back out, goes out for his warm-up tosses, and calls them out and says, I, I'm hurt, I can't, I can't do this. And he was removed from the game. And, you know, he's missed some, some stuff this year, some time, with s- something. There's something going on. And that's scary in itself. Whatever is happening isn't, isn't just a minor issue that we should brush over because there is something going on. And Jacob deGrom is the best pitcher in baseball. So I am a little, I am a little worried about Jacob deGrom, uh, if, I'm, if I'm being totally honest. And, and I hope it's something minor, but it, this, is a, this is a theme we're starting to see. Of There's something going on. So I am worried. Uh, but, but the Mets are playing good baseball now. The Mets are starting to play really good baseball. And you also asked on my thoughts about the Mets. Look, it already seems like this team starts and goes and, and stops and with Francisco Lindor. This is their guy. He's their shortstop of the future. And he was struggling big time. And we started to see him heat up over the weekend. He had a good weekend. And the Mets are rolling right now. They've won a few games in a row. Uh, they're starting to turn around. They're in first place in the NL East, which is a great division. Look, the, the records aren't great in the NL East, but everybody's beating up on each other. They're all good teams. The Mets are playing well, um, and, and I like them. I like the Mets this year, and I really hope Francisco Lindor continues to, to, to improve and, and get away from that slow start he had. So, Rick, hit me with number two. Hey, Ben, this is Nick from Connecticut, uh, born and raised in New England, uh, diehard Red Sox fan. Um, I know it's only a matter of time that Red, that Red Sox lineup starts to cool off and that Yankee lineup starts to warm back up. Uh, but I'm looking forward. I'm looking at the trade deadline, um, already thinking, uh, if we're still in the hunt, uh, who might be a position or a player you're, you're thinking that the Sox could go after. Uh, I'm looking at maybe Tyler Glass now. How about that starting pitching? Um, or maybe uh, Josh Hader if somehow the Brewers start cooling off and they're getting afraid of, you know, maybe trying to get some young arms, help out that back end of our rotation. Um, what are you thinking? I'd love to hear it. Uh, go Sox. All right. First off, Nate, thank you for the question. Great question, but one takeaway here immediately off the bat. If you think Tyler Glass now is just going to find his way over to the, to the Red Sox, <laughs> I got news for you. That ain't happening. Tyler Glass now is becoming one of the best pitchers in baseball. The Rays are going to be in it till the end, so I wouldn't hold your breath on that. But I also wanted to make another point on something you said that I disagree with. You said it's only a matter of time until the Red Sox cool off and the Yankees' offense heats up. I agree. The Yankees' offense is going to heat up. But the Red Sox' offense is legit. Now, I'm not saying they're going to continue all year to, to be, you know, the best offense in baseball. But they're good. And that's why before this season even started, I said, I like the Red Sox. I think the core is there. I think their offense is really good. And if they can get some pitching, they'll be fine. I don't see the Red Sox offense cooling off and and not being good. Their offense is really good. And yes, the Yankees are going to turn it around and be towards the top of the division. But look, the Red Sox are good. And, And I'm glad you mentioned it. They are in a position to add somebody and be one of the best teams in baseball. They already are right now playing like the best team in baseball. Now, we both know, if, if we're looking at the offense, and if we look at the pitching rotation, they're not the most complete team in baseball. Their pitching rotation needs help. 
Now, you mentioned Glass now, which you know I disagree with, but here's what I don't disagree with. They're going to pick somebody up. They're going to get somebody. They're playing well. They're in a position to win. I could see them going out and getting a guy like Luis Castillo. If the Reds aren't, if the Reds aren't in it, he's a, he's a piece that I for, I for sure see getting moved. If, if they're not close in the NL Central come trade deadline, Luis Castillo is a piece that will be moved somewhere. And the Red Sox are a great fit for him. That's what they need. Their rotation is what's lacking. Maybe they get Chris Sale back at some point this year. That'd be huge for them. And as a matter of fact, I think they, they do get him back at some point this year. That'd be huge. Is he going to be the pitcher, you know, we saw years ago? Probably not. But he's a big bolster for that rotation. And I do think they go out and add a piece. And yes, I, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be Hater in the bullpen because the Brewers are going to be in it. But, but I, I do think your mindset is right. I do think the Red Sox are in a position to add pieces and be right there when the season is coming down to the wire. So thank you for your question. But don't be so hard on your team's offense. They're legit. Red Sox are legit. And it's going to be a good race in the AL East. So thank you guys for getting in those questions. Keep getting in those questions weekly. This is arguably my, my favorite segment of the show. 213-537-9339. To get in your questions, voice your displeasure, whatever it may be. So thank you again to you guys that called in this week. But now it's time for my six-tool player of the week. This week, Francisco Lindor. It is no surprise Lindor has been disappointing to start the year. Look, I get it. I know it. He comes over, he signs one of the biggest deals in history for a shortstop, and he proceeds to hit under 200 for the first month of the season. That sucks, and I get it. But this past weekend, the weekend series, he hits a huge home run on Friday night. He proceeds to go 5 for 11 in the series over, you know, batting 450-something, not great with math, but I'm decent with math. Hitting 450 something. But the home run on Friday night, a huge, huge home run for the Mets, but even bigger for Lindor. He was struggling. The city of New York knows he's struggling. Mets fans know he's struggling. But I promise you, nobody is beating themselves up more than Francisco Lindor. I promise you. And to see him Friday night hit that huge homer. Uh, and, and walk out of the box and beat his chest round in first. Man, it got me so pumped up. It got me so pumped up. It was sick to watch. The energy, the passion. He gets home. He pumps up the crowd. That is why he is my six-tool player of the week. And it's even sweeter because of how much he was struggling. I wrote about this for FoxSports.com. I've been there. Trust me. I have struggled at the professional level. I have, big time. I've been through the ups. I've been through the downs. I've seen guys go through the downs. It doesn't matter whether you're me in the minor leagues or Francisco Lindor in the big leagues. It eats you alive. Absolutely destroys you. It's all you think about. You take it home with you. An 0 for 8. An 0 for 4 turns into an 0 for 8, which turns into an 0 for 20. The next thing you know, you're hitting 180 for the month of April. That's not Lindor. Lindor's the best shortstop in baseball, arguably. If not, if not the best, top two or three. So this was awesome to see. It's absolutely awesome because I know the weight of the world was lifted off of his shoulder on that home run Friday night. Not only did it pump me up, not only was it awesome, not only was it electric, but the weight of the world was lifted off of Francisco Lindor's shoulders. And it was really awesome to see the success he had the rest of the weekend. And I really hope he carries it into this next week and through the rest of the season because he is so fun to watch. He's, he's the epitome of a six-tool player when he's going well. He's having fun. He's always smiling. Mr. Smile, as he's dubbed. He's awesome to watch. And that's why he's this week's six-tool player of the week. But that does it for this week's episode of Flippin' Bats. Thank you guys so much for listening. And make sure you're getting all those follows in on all social medias. The Twitter account is rolling. The Instagram account is rolling. 
follow on Facebook, but please make sure you subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast and rate this five stars. Uh, this has been so much fun and this means so much to me. So thank you guys for listening. Make sure you're getting in all those follows and I will see you next time on Flipping Bats. It's a blowout, eighth inning, 10-3. Bases are loaded for Verlander who waits out of the He swings and it's a high fly ball, deep center field. It is gone, home run. And a huge bat flip to celebrate.